Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs Radio Show. On this week's episode, we continued our twice-monthly series with Medical Association of Georgia. MAG CEO and Executive Director Donald Pomizano Jr. joined me on the mic, and we had the special treat of sitting down with Georgia House Representative Sharon Cooper. She also happens to be the chair of the Georgia Health and Human Services Committee, tasked with reviewing House measures that are aimed at addressing a wide variety of health-related issues from seatbelt safety laws to how physicians practice in the state of Georgia. We got the chance to talk about how the committee prioritizes what they're going to focus on with regards to the health measures that are before them. Oftentimes, there's a number of different measures to be considered given all the moving parts within the healthcare sector. Madam Chair also took some time to discuss a handful of the higher profile measures that are before the committee that are garnering a lot of attention. I look at what's coming forth and try to decide if it's about access, which is always top priority and uh, if it's good for patients. I mean, that's that's like I have one now uh, that is causing a lot of stir. It's about letting dental hygienists Mm -hmm. have a little bit more leeway. Right now, there's a law that says a hygienist cannot work unless the dentist is in the building. And that's not always possible in our safety net settings. Uh, At a free clinic, dentists may go once a month. And he may see 40 patients just checking them, not 40, but maybe 25, and that 20 of those need to have their teeth cleaned. Well, a dental hygienist can't clean 20 teeth, sets of teeth in a day, so those patients back up. Well, the bill says that the dentist is still in charge, makes the decision, and but that the dental hygienist could clean, go back and clean the teeth on another day. And right now, the dentists are upset. And it's the old story that you hear over from all professions. Well, if we let them do this, that's the camel's nose under the tent. And they're going to be back in a couple of years and they're going to want to do this. And then they're going to do that. If we stuck with that and didn't fight these out, sometimes we would never, you know, improve access to care. Well, to give weight behind what you're talking about. I happen to have had those folks on the show not too awful long ago, so that's the reason why I'm familiar with it. 159 counties, and I think it was either 116 or 118, have too few dentists to treat the population of that county, and and it was more than 10 for sure that had no dentists at all living in the county. So what we're talking about is the ability for a person that as a healthcare provider ends up delivering what tends to be preventive health measures, right. identifying problems, preventing them by administering cleanings, but screening being one of the big pieces and in those individuals as they go into those underserved areas that we're talking about here, particularly for elderly and children, those are higher risk populations that would be affected heavily. Right. They're going to identify problems that need who? They need, they need a dentist. They need a dentist and they would <laughs> recommend them out. And so, you know, what I look at is, can you give me a viable reason why there's a safety factor in doing this? And right now, I'm not very popular with the dentist because I'm allowing this bill to be on at the committee this afternoon, and they're a little upset. Well, that's exciting in a way, though, because I think in the end, we'll see that it's not so terrible. Hopefully. Depending on the outcome, I suppose. Stick around. I got the full interview with Donald Pomisano Jr. and State House Representative Sharon Cooper 
coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall. Thank you for joining us on Top Docs Radio. Yet again, we're continuing on our series with the Medical Association of Georgia. And I'm pleased to have with me in studio the Executive Director and CEO of Medical Association of Georgia, Donald Pomisano Jr. Well, thank you. And uh, we really do appreciate this relationship. And I was also very pleased to meet Representative Sharon Cooper. She is the chair of the House Health and Human Services Committee here in the state of Georgia. And Looking forward to talking about some of the things going on in the legislative branch around healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. It's certainly an interesting topic. <laughs> so let's just get right down into it. Uh, healthcare has been dominating a lot of what both the media and people around uh, the dinner table are talking about. And, uh, you know, from the perspective of the legislation, uh, what would you say coming up this year are some of the big topics that are that are being focused on? Because uh, obviously we did a lot of heavy lifting last year and a lot of things kind of happened. We'll talk a little bit more about some of those. But when you sit around in uh, in committee and, and looking at this year, are there some things in the, in the works that people might want to know about? Well, I don't think there's one big issue. Uh, there's still groups pushing for an expansion of Medicaid. And in a perfect world, I would all patients would have access to good quality care and be able to afford it. But this is one I think the governor made the right decision on. And people, there's not a big pot of money that you get that comes to the state, whether you see patients or not. You only get the money from the federal government, which is our money and our tax money, if a patient is seen. And Georgia has a severe doctor shortage. We're a rural state. People in Metro Atlanta have trouble thinking about us being rural, but we are basically a rural state. If you Count the Atlanta metro area, we're about 38th in the number of doctors needed for every 100,000 patients or Georgians. When we go out and can put in the rural, we go to about 48th. We have a desperate shortage of physicians, and there's not anybody to see our an expanded Medicaid base. And people would think they had coverage, but there would be nobody for them to see. And the other thing, of course, is the cost. Medicaid mm-hmm. is one of the worst programs possible. And why would we want to expand a program that's already broken? It's not quality care. And, you know, it'd be different if the feds would give us a waiver and let us try to set up a really good program. And if we had enough physicians. Yeah. And talking about the the paucity of physicians in the rural areas of the state, one of the things that I know is emerging just as a trend of technology as much as anything, but also forces like this trying to see if there's ways that we can fill some of those voids through telehealth. Has that come across the the desk in the legislation to try and address that? Because, you know, it can create some challenges with regards to licensure. Where is the physician sitting when they're on the phone or on videography with the the patient, things like that? Have you all tackled that issue? We're using it, and uh, they use it in the prison system, the Medical College of Georgia, uh, and their residency programs and with their docs. And yes, we are looking at it and expanding. There's only so much you can do, but it's certainly one tool in the toolbox. And uh, as technology uh, is improved, I think we will use it even more. I mean, they're now coming up. Uh, with uh, technology where somebody can be putting something on a patient's stomach and they can almost, the person watching it on telemedicine can almost feel where the probe is going. Right. So, yes, in the future, that will help. Yeah, and, and also, just to follow up on that, is that um, part of the challenge is that while the technology is there, the financing mechanism, mechanisms have not caught up yet. So, 
the health insurers are trying to figure out ways how to pay the physicians for the work they do. So for, by way of an example, um, you know, my primary care physician, when something comes up to me, I can text her right away and say, hey, I'm not feeling too good, um, have a discussion, and, and she'll say, hey, well, you, you, you're probably going to need this, right? But she doesn't get paid for doing that. And so under the current system, I have to go make an appointment, wait for her in her office just in order for her to get paid for administering you know, some sort of health care for me, which doesn't really make much sense with technology the way it is. Right. And so we've had discussions with a number of the insurers saying, when are you going to move to really start paying for these services? Because you'll hear, oh, yeah, we do pay for some services, but they don't pay for all the services. So it just kind of we're working on an antiquated payment system where the technology has far surpassed it. And clearly with the rise of telehealth and the ability, as as, uh, Ms. Cooper was saying a moment ago, that with with the the technology that we have, it is possible now to actually extend remotely a, a fair measure of care, particularly primary care, particularly low acuity, urgent care type things. Do I need to go to the hospital or this is what I'm looking at? They can actually, there are services in the state right now that that will do that for you using your the videography on your phone. You can show them how swollen your ankle is that you turned and they can make some recommendations based on your your history as to whether or not you would warrant uh, an ER visit. So it would seem that using telehealth would be able to help us bridge that gap a little bit. Well, I think it is. And I think the other thing that Donald brings up, one problem as the system is changing, our whole healthcare system is changing, is medical malpractice. I know my husband was a family practitioner and years ago, somebody came in and they thought they'd sprain their ankle. He would check it. Uh, if he didn't think it was broken, he would, you know, wrap it and tell him what to do. And tell him to let him know if there was excess swelling and they, you know, a lot of pain and to call him and come back in a couple of days. Now, physicians are so afraid of being sued if they miss a break and anything goes wrong that then they're going to x-ray it and then that's an added expense. So with telemedicine, I think also uh, there's a fear if you're going to diagnose with, through telemedicine that you might make a mistake. So what do we do about it as far as you know, medical malpractice. So the whole system is changing and it's changing very rapidly and there are parts of it that need to uh, catch up. But I want to talk about Grady. Grady, people used to say bad things about Grady and Grady was in a big mess. Grady is leading our hospitals now in our state. And if you have a stroke, you want to go to Grady to the Marcus Stroke Center. And what they have is they work with 70 hospitals across our state now. And if they get a stroke victim in, they can contact the head uh, neurologist at the Grady Center, show him on his phone, you know, what they've taken, the CT scans and all, and he can help in this small rural hospital tell them what to do, whether Mm -hmm. the patient needs to be transported to the closest big hospital that's a trauma center or if they can just give the patient something. And so they are, Grady is becoming a real resource. And I think people really don't know what Grady does. You know, the new medicine um, that helps alleviate the clot that they talk about now, if you have a stroke, you should get it within an hour. Yeah. Grady did the leading research in the country on that medicine that is now used all over the world. We just don't sing the praises of Grady 
enough. I had one of the clinicians actually that participated in the trials, uh, clinical trials around those medications that dissolve clots like that. So it was uh, exciting to see that kind of activity and, and research going on here in Atlanta. And as you talked about, Grady being one of the places where our physicians that are coming out to step into some of these roles that we're talking about are trained in a lot of these very high acuity, very complex types of patients and conditions right there at, at, in town at Grady. Well, and what people don't realize is that physicians stay where they do their residencies more than where they go to medical school. That's right. I mean, we've upped and are upping our number of medical students at the Medical College of Georgia by 300. And we've started a campus the state has over in Athens. But we need more residency slots. I was going to ask you about that. How do we tackle that issue, do you think? Well, we talk to our congressmen, which we do, because there has been a federal freeze on residency slots. Uh, A residency is very expensive for a hospital, about $140,000 per resident per year. Now, the resident didn't get that money. Sure. (laughs) But when you hire all the faculty that goes along with it and all the other regulations and so forth, that's what it runs. And most hospitals are not willing to pay that uh, themselves. And so the feds pay about eighty dollars to $90,000 per resident, but they have had a moratorium, basically. Now, last year they lifted it. I think they opened up 200 slots. Florida got a bunch. We didn't get any. So uh, we're having to just every time there's a possibility that more uh, are available to get our congressmen to go and, you know, plead our case for us. And I will tell you that Wellstar uh, will take its first... Uh, general medicine um, internist, uh, 10 residents in uh, July. Oh, that's great. And they are paying for it. Wellstar is picking up the whole cost. So uh, I'm very proud of that program. And they've been approved also for, I think, about six OBs that they'll that will. Well, that's fantastic because, I mean, that's where we really have to start, particularly in those rural areas. I mean, it's a challenging, it's it's a challenging balancing act, particularly in primary care. And you look at uh, OBGYN may not be quite as challenging for the oh. physician, but in terms of earning a living, uh, they're on the lower scale from a financial perspective. Once they're finished, uh, that doesn't pay fantastically when, when you look at some of the other specialties out there. But that's some of the real people that we need to have in those rural areas. Well, it is. And that's one of the things that, I, I, I mean, Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act, as it's called, we needed changes. In fact, I fussed at Newt Gingrich when the Republicans held the speakership in both houses of Congress and the presidency. And why didn't you make some of the changes we need? Like people needed to not be uh, where they couldn't get insurance and this kind of thing. And but that's hindsight. So we we got Obamacare, but they really didn't think it through. Right. Like if you're going to have hundreds of thousands of more people insured, then you're going to then more people are going to see doctors and you need more doctors, <laughs> That's right. you know, take off that moratorium on the number of residency slots we can have. So they really didn't think it through. And OBs and uh, family practitioners really are on the bottom scale of the totem pole when it comes to how much salary they make. And many of them are having trouble keeping their doors open, That's especially right. in rural areas yep. where you see a lot of Medicaid patients. Well, the state and the feds pay them less than 80 cents on the dollar. So they have to have paying patients to try to keep their doors open. And the insurance companies are squeezing them. And so we're having a, a real problem. A lot of the docs, and you know, they didn't believe us when we were talking during all the discussions about Obamacare, that there were going to be a lot of physicians in their 50s, in their 60s, that 
were going to retire. They right. just were not going to put up with all the changes that were coming if they had their children raised, their house paid for, some money in their savings, and they didn't feel like they had to. Where most physicians, my husband worked until 10 days before he passed away. A lot of the older physicians, all they knew was medicine and they wanted to work. And now what we're having, you hear them at 50 and they, you know, they want to re- well, leave medicine. That and also as as a practicing physician, would you would you let your high school, you know, child, high school age child say, yeah, I'm going to go into medicine. I think that they're probably getting some counsel going another direction into something that's uh, not so complex because you don't really, you spend so much time now in the medical practice. I, I came from a background in healthcare myself and up till very recently was a physician liaison in a medical practice. So I got to see the the physician practice side of all of these things. And uh, the, the even the physicians end up having to spend a bunch of time administratively just to, you, you talked about some of the rates that they get paid for their care they provide. They still have to fight sometimes two and three times to get that 80 cents. So then it's reduced even further. (laughs) When you're talking to a high school graduate on the telephone at an insurance company trying to explain them why a patient desperately needs a procedure, (laughs) it can be pretty frustrating when you've gone through 12 or 15 years past high school to know what you're doing and to treat, give patients the best care in some high school graduate is telling you that that treatment is not necessary. Pretty frustrating. (laughs) And, so, so Donald, when you when you look at this coming up year for the Medical Association of Georgia, are there some particular areas of focus that you see on the horizon that we want to try to, uh, either in this particular session, if we can, um, have some impact, or through the course of this year, that we can affect both the delivery of care for patients to, to their benefit of their outcomes, as well as to the practice environment for the physicians delivering the care. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say this is that uh, first thing about Madam Chair, she, she's been outstanding to work with, as she alluded to. Um, her her um, husband you, uh, was the co-founder of the uh, medical aid station down at the Capitol. And that's a service that um, Medical Association um, recruits volunteer physicians to be there in case some of the legislators get sick. And um, Dr. Cooper, who had passed away last year, um, was was kind enough to get started for the legislature. God, that was about 30 years ago, huh? 35 a years ago? A little longer, 69. Wow, 1969. And then Madam Chair, in her own right, um, down at the Capitol, has been an, an advocate for patients first. Um, always patients first. And sometimes, um, you know, we have some, we agree on issues and other times we don't. And she's not afraid to tell us when she doesn't agree with with a position that we come down there with. But you appreciate that honesty because then you can sit there and listen to both sides and kind of say, OK, well, I hear what the other side is saying and, and, and kind of, you know, bring it back to our membership and say this is what the other side is really saying versus, you know, sometimes and hide the ball that that sometimes happens. And so we really appreciate the work working with her. Well, thank you very much, because. I really try to, when I review bills, and chairmen have a lot of leeway on which bills move out of your committee. Uh, about the only person that can make us move a bill is the speaker. And, you know, then we have a choice. We can either resign if we don't want to move a bill that the speaker <laughs> wants, or, you know, we can move the bill. And that happens. Uh, I think I've been chairman since 2007 or something like this, and so, or five, and that's happened twice, once under the speaker and once under another speaker. And so we decide what, you know, what's going to move. And I do try to look at 
what's best for the patient, not what's best for doctors yep. or nurses or whatever. And I, it's pretty bad because I have an advanced degree in nursing and I've had the nurses sit and scream at me about, why don't you do things for your profession? Why aren't you protecting your profession? But I'm down there to protect the patients and the citizens of Georgia, not any one profession. So I do try to look at it that way. What kind of nursing did you do? Psychiatric nursing. Cardiovascular intensive care here. Well, you know, it's really funny. When I ran for office, there were four other people. And somebody asked me how it was different. And after watching the legislature, I said, well, you know, I know how to put on a straight jacket. I think that might be very advantageous in the legislature. I'm sure it drives you a little crazy going through some of the processes. Oh, yes, it does. (laughs) So when you're in, in... trying to deter- determine what are we going to place our focus on? Because I'm sure there's a lot of moving parts when we look at the, the healthcare of a given state and, and and there's major metropolitan areas that we have issues in that are going to be different from, as we talked about, some of these rural areas that tend to be underserved. How do you end up coming together with a pr- priority for this is what we're going to tackle right now? I'm not sure that we, unless there's a major issue or one that the governor's pushing and on the forefront, that you can really come up with a priority list Um, because you never know. A legislator can put in any bill he wants to put in, even how crazy it is. And I always tell my constituents and hopefully others, don't panic. They, you know, they can put in a bill about anything that doesn't mean it's going to move. So, you know, I, you just never know what's going to come before the health committee and the speaker can put a health bill in agriculture if he wants to. It doesn't have to come to health. He can put a bill on public safety into judiciary. So it's up to him where he wants to put put bills. And most of the time, the health bills come to health. Um, I I laugh because used to he would put the uh, safe uh, the seatbelt bill for pickup trucks in agriculture because all the guys on ag <laughs> didn't want seatbelts in their pickup trucks. Then one year he put it in health. And everybody was going, you got the seatbelt bill. And I'm going, no, 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 that's a mistake. And then then I got the list. I got the seatbelt bill because the speaker knew I would move it. So uh, I think you just, I look at what's coming forth and try to decide if it's about access, which is always top priority, and uh, if it's good for patients. I mean, that's, that's like, I have one now uh, that is causing a lot of stir. It's about letting dental hygienists mm-hmm. have a little bit more leeway. Right now, there's a law that says a hygienist cannot work unless the dentist is in the building. And that's not always possible in our safety net settings. Uh, at a free clinic, dentists may go once a month. And he may see 40 patients just checking them, not 40, but maybe 25. And that 20 of those need to have their teeth cleaned. Well, a dental hygienist can't clean 20 teeth sets of teeth in a day. So those patients back up. Well, the bill says that the dentist is still in charge, makes the decision, and but that the dental hygienist could clean, go back and clean the teeth on another day. And right now the dentists are upset. And it's the old story that you hear over from all professions. Well, if we let them do this, that's the camel's nose under the tent. And they're going to be back in a couple of years and they're going to want to do this. And then they're going to do that. If we stuck with that and didn't fight these out, sometimes we would never, you know, improve access to care. Well, to give some more weight behind what you're talking about. I happen to have had those folks on the show not too awful long ago, so that's the reason why I'm familiar with it. 159 counties, and I think it was either 116 or 118, have too few 
dentists to treat the population of that county. And, and it was more than 10 for sure that had no dentist at all living in the county. So what we're talking about is the ability for a person that as a healthcare provider ends up delivering what tends to be preventive health measures, right. identifying problems, preventing them by administering cleanings, but screening being one of the big pieces in those individuals as they go into those underserved areas that we're talking about here, particularly for elderly and children, those are higher risk populations that would be affected heavily. Right. They're going to identify problems that need who? They need, they need a dentist. They need a dentist. So they would <laughs> recommend them out. And so, you know, what I look at is, can you give me a viable reason why there's a safety factor in doing this? And right now, I'm not very popular with the dentist because I'm allowing this bill to be on at the committee this afternoon, and they're a little upset. Well, that's exciting in a way, though, because I think in the end, we'll see that it's not so terrible. Hopefully. Depending on the outcome, I suppose. Well, also, from, from the physician's perspective, and one, and one of the issues that, that we've heard a lot about from patients is about um, getting um, access to care for their physicians, especially... Um, when they look at the physician directories and if there's adequate physician networks. And we've listened to a lot of patients and we've, we've gotten a lot of complaints from patients talking about that their doctor was in network at one right. point, then the directory changes yes. on a daily basis. Yep. And then the next thing you know, the, the patient's out. So one of the things that, um, that they had a study committee over the summer, we've talked about this on past radio shows with Senate Bill 158 uh, that uh, Senator Dean Burke, who's a physician, is um, had uh, put forth a bill. And so the funny thing is, so in, in trying to find access to care for patients and trying to, to, to make sure that patients are able to see their physicians and to keep their physicians because they bought the policy, right? right, right. Uh, the insurers have responded and said, well, they want to go after abusive billing from physicians. So we, we have to come back and think about, well, how does abuse, how, how, what is the definition of abusive billing, right? And so we can't get an answer from the insurance companies. And so they're, they're going down to the Capitol and talking about all these problems with, with, with physicians and their, and their, uh, their balance billing issues. Uh, yes. You're talking and about so, the, the, when you say balance billing, you're talking about the remainder that comes when I go to get care and then my insurance company will pay so much for an in-network physician and so much for an out-of-network physician. And as it happens, like you talked about, when I purchased my plan, this doctor that I'm going to see was in network. But then when I got my care delivered, now they're not in the network anymore. So that doctor is, quote unquote, out of network. And so that could potentially uh, offset any kind of pre-authorization that we did even in advance of this particular care. So now the patient gets a bill. Right. And it's it's being proposed that, that the physician is doing something nefarious for saying that, Correct. that there's a balance. Correct. And I, you have to collect that. Because that could be an out-of-network issue. Right. Or even on an in-network issue, you know, patient may not understand how high their deductible is. Yeah. And so they get a bill from the from the physician and then they're kind of like, well, why do I have to pay this bill? Because they're paying so much in premiums yes. now, right? Because it's all, it's continued to go up. Well, the funny thing is the insurers have created the problem, right? So they create the problem by having these narrow networks and decreasing access to care for patients, right? Then when they have to actually pay the bill because the directory wasn't up to date or something along those lines, they run to the legislature because they think it's a good idea to run to the legislature to solve a problem that they have actually created. Okay. Now, don't you wish we could all do that? It would seem that with uh, the rise of the technology that we have now, EMRs and the the various electronic systems that we're using for billing and, and so forth, that it would seem that the directory would be able to be Real time. Well, let me jump in on this one because I was looking at a directory from one of the insurers for a certain area of our state. And 
they had listed, and, and we require for our CMOs and all, that they have adequate panels. And, you know, there are a lot of physicians that want to be on these panels, and the insurance will tell them, oh, it's full. And this is what they were telling people, physicians, in this instance. And there were like six hospitalists listed. Right, as primary care physicians. As primary care physicians. Hospitalists do not see patients except when they are patients in the hospital. But they made their panel look like it was adequate because they had listed the hospitalist. Well, the reason why that's technically possible, it's a technical situation, is because they come from internal medicine in most cases or family practice, but most often internal medicine. And then checking the ones, what few were left, that really were family practitioners and internal medicine physicians. I think there were seven or eight of those. Only two were still in the location. They'd moved. So here's this panel. So you know, patient looks at the book and goes, oh, yeah, Dr. So-and-so is in. Well, they can't find them. And so they need care. So they make the calls. And so they finally go to a physician. They're out of network because no one in network was available to see them. And it is being caused by the insurance companies. And they like to blame the doctors. Well, I know that part of the, I don't know how far along the requirement is, but most companies in health insurance and even uh, physician practice more and more are starting to make available a portal for their patient. And I believe some of that is a requirement on some level. I don't know if it's gone into effect that you have to have it today, but I know that uh, that it is a requirement that you have to have access to certain information from your health record as a patient. And it would seem to me, as I was saying earlier, that those types of elements, whether or not someone's in a contract now or not should be able to be real time and shown to me through a portal like that. But but if you talk to the health insurers, it's more complicated than that, that it's almost impossible for them to keep up their physician directories, which we're in shock by because <laughs> if I can go to my ATM and pull out $50 right. or $60, right. and then I go back to my house and I get on my, my laptop or my, my iPad and it pops back up, that transaction's already shown. So you're going to sit here and tell me that you can't keep a physician's directory up to date. I mean, I find that a little bit absurd. And I think it's a little bit dishonest to the patients out there. It would seem that on issues like this that uh, that we've been talking about, that a, a level of activism is necessary from both physicians in the community that have these issues that maybe a lot of us aren't aware of. Um, they're certainly experiencing the the process of that, that the practice has to go through to get reimbursed for the care once it's been delivered. Uh, I can attest to seeing tables in the practice, literally with stacks of very neatly organized patient charts to be resubmitted uh, second or third time to get reimbursed uh, for, for care that's been delivered already. So it sounds like talking to somebody uh, in your you know, representative's office, your senator's office would be in order. And the same for the patients, because the patients, as we were talking about earlier, are the ones who ultimately end up bearing the burden of that. Well, and, and that's true. Yeah. Oh, and, and just to follow up on that point exactly, is that from a 2013 study, um, we know that over $575 million was transferred to patients for emergency uh, department care, okay, payments to the physicians. So when you look at it from a patient's perspective, what has actually happened is you've increased my cost to have insurance, you've now increased my share of the payment, and so then what you're doing, you're narrowing the networks, and so what is the patient actually getting on these policies? And that's the problem is that the patient's 
are not being explained to from the insurance companies, what is the value or the benefit of that policy? Because clearly there's not much benefit. So what could we do from a perspective of legislative process that might be able to fix these things? So because, I mean, we want, we want, we want healthy companies. We want, you know, physicians to be able to practice in a, in a positive environment where they can really deliver the top level care and, and make an honest living doing that. And we want to protect our patients and their outcomes. So well, where, do we, where do we go? I don't know. I guess I'm probably Don will answer that question. I, I think what is a legislator, we don't want to overreact right. and put, punish our physicians for something they're not guilty of. Uh, now, of course, you know, there's bad apples in every profession. Yes. And if somebody really is doing bogus charges, that's one thing. Sure. But this is not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And we need to, and and Donald and Mag, they're doing a good job of trying to educate the legislators. So we don't want to overreact and, you know, do something that's going to harm the few physicians that we still have in practice in medicine in Georgia. Uh, but I'm not sure on a state level what we can do to change it. Well, I think it'd be good if... Um if the insurers were required to have adequate um, networks out there so that and, and the products that they're selling so that patients can have access to care to their physicians. Two is updated physician directors. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why these Electronic, physicians... Probably. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. That the patient can check before they go um, see see their doctor. You know, one of the other things, and I've, I've asked this before on this radio show, and I have asked this for six months, is that I would love to know and hear from a patient that received right. the bill in excess of $500 and actually paid that bill in what they would call an abusive billing or a surprise billing, however they want to define it. Because we would like that information. Again, I'm going to give out my email because I've been waiting six months and I've not gotten anything <laughs> to that regard. And I want to be able to say I've done it again. Right. D Palmazano, at mag.org. Just email it to me just because I want to have an understanding because we're looking at this issue and saying, is it truly, a, is, it, is it a physician issue? Is it a benefit design issue? We want to be able to diagnose the issue before all of a sudden trying to find a solution where a problem may or may not exist. Chairman of the House of Health and Human Services Committee, Representative Sharon Cooper and CEO and Executive Director of Medical Association of Georgia, Donald Pomizano, joining me in studio, talking about legislative priorities and some topical uh, issues that are uh, are bantering around in the Capitol and and outside, actually, around the way healthcare is delivered here in the state. And I'm pleased to be uh, having this conversation here so that we can help all players involved, all the stakeholders that have uh, some level of interest to be better educated and be able to talk about what their experience is so that we can come to some good solutions for for these issues. And something that's on a, I think, a positive note is uh, the the Georgia 911 medical amnesty law. I know that there's several other states out there around the country. I think 25, the last thing I saw was around 25 states around the country have similar laws in place. And, and from the early returns on the statistics around those, that it appears that they are having a measure of impact on the, the frequency that people are dying from drug overdoses, whether they're prescription drugs or illegal drugs. Right. And so let's talk about that and what's going on here in the state around that. Well, I'm very proud of that, Bill. Um, a lot of times in the legislature, we don't really see the end result of how our bills change people's lives. So when you get one where you can see, and that was my bill, you go, wow, I have actually made a difference coming down here and uh, being in this atmosphere, which sometimes is very trying, (laughs) uh, really is worth it. And I want to say about young people, you can make a difference. A young man named Justin Leaf, who's now in law school at Georgia State, 
had been my intern. And uh, two years ago, on a Sunday before we started the next day on a Monday, he brought seven mothers to my house who had lost children. And what had happened is their kids had been experimenting with drugs, had an overdose. They had been with their friends, and the friends had abandoned them or either, in one case, watched a young man have seizures for over an hour. Mm -hmm. Then he died, and then they dumped his body on his mother's front yard. Because the young people thought, oh, if you know, if I, well, I'm going to go to jail or up like up in Athens or other universities. Oh, if I get caught, I've been doing drugs too. I won't get in medical school. I won't get in law school. This will ruin my college career. So what we did was pass a bill that says, if you'll call 911 and one person will stay with a person that's in, you know, distress, then we won't prosecute that person. And it has made a difference. The other part of that was to make Narcan. It's an antidote to an obituates. Uh, it's squirted. There's a version that you can squirt in the nose. And we made it much more available to families, to police officers to carry with them, since they very often are the ones that get to the person first. Right. And in a drug overdose, minutes matter. And so I hope people will talk to their uh, children and uh, their grandchildren and all about, you know, about this and tell them not to abandon their friends. First of all, don't do drugs. But uh, if you're in a group, uh, don't abandon somebody uh, because you're not going to be prosecuted if somebody will stay with this person. We have a terrible drug problem. And it's Mm -hmm. one of the things that are very concerning to me. And I know the attorney general has the same feelings and is working on this from prescription meds right and uh very often uh, you know getting addicted to prescription meds then leads to heroin um and trying to curb that in in 2014 there were four and a half million prescriptions written for hydrocodone four and a half million here in georgia and there was another one and a quarter million written for oxycontin those are just two categories and we only have a little over 10 million people in the state of Georgia. <laughs> I mean, Americans come to believe that they shouldn't feel any pain. Well, if you happen to be one of those people that has an addictive personality and you may not know it, no pain may mean an addiction. Yeah, it, and, genetics will play a role into the, how your body responds to it, for sure. That's it. And so it's really a problem. And, you know, we're working on ways to try to prevent, I hope, People will clean out their uh, medicine cabinets because often the addiction starts very young, like in the sixth grade or fifth grade, and they've gotten them from their parents' uh, medicine cabinets, medicines that weren't totally used, and then they just go on from there. So we need to be very careful about the medications that we keep in our home, disposing of medications that we're not using anymore. And most of the police stations around the state, in the counties and all, have programs. If you call them, they'll tell you you where you can dispose of drugs. I know that the MAG Foundation is tackling this issue around prescription drugs with the Think About It campaign. And also we've expanded the campaign to what we call um, DAN, Project DAN, Deaths Avoided by Naloxone. And uh, right now we're up in the 13-county area uh, through a generous grant from uh, the Medical Center Foundation from the Northeast Georgia Medical Center up there. And um, in fact, we started to train um, the, the police departments in those areas 
on how to administer naloxone. We do the training, but we also purchase the naloxone for the uh, law enforcement and first responders. And so in the next week or two, um, most of Hall County is going to be um, getting uh, this training and also being equipped with naloxone. And to date, uh, we've had a couple of instances where lives have been saved. So we're very proud of it. Even though you hear a lot of us, uh, a lot from us on our advocacy um, uh, posture, but we also do a lot of stuff in the community. So it, it's been fantastic. And That's I can't exciting. say enough about uh, Representative Sharon Cooper, but also uh, Justin Leaf, who we worked, who worked with us for quite a few years. Um, uh, and so it, it was fantastic. It was. And, and, you know, you want people to, young people to be involved. Uh, my intern now, John Powell's with me. Uh, you know, I, I guess because I'm an old college professor, we get interns assigned to us. John's back for his second year. First year was assigned. He's back by choice this year and a, and a great help. And I try to make sure that, you know, if I'm doing something, they go with me uh, so that they get a really good look at what the legislature is like. But, like it, but they also bring, like Justin did, their own ideas. And I'd like to see more young people really know how the legislative process works uh, and have a realistic view of it instead of maybe one just uh, from over the media. But the drug problem really is, I mean, in our country, Americans consume about 95% of all the hydrocodone made in the world. And here's another example of how they didn't think the Obama program out. Doctors, they're easing into this where doctors and hospitals are now going to be dinged and they're going to have their Medicaid and their Medicare payments reduced based on patient evaluations. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I'm That'll all for That'll be a dissatisfier, I'm sure, if they get cut back on how much pain On how much pain medicine. meds they give. And so, I mean... What do you do? Your emergency room physician, this patient in here is raising hell. You know you're going to be raided. Yes. Or you're a PA or a nurse practitioner, and they're screaming, they're going to, I'm going to get your job and tell a physician you're not going to do something if you're a PA or a nurse practitioner. Or the hospital is on your back because they're going to be downgraded if you don't do it, and it's hard enough. I mean, doctors, it's sort of the problem that doctors have with antibiotics. Yes. And now we're seeing all this resistant to antibiotics because, you know, People go in and they say, I want an antibiotic. And the physician says, but I think you have a virus and antibiotics don't work on viruses. And the patient says, I don't care. I want an antibiotic. (laughs) You can often conjole them into giving you one. Right. And so uh, here again, they didn't think through this process. And we are seeing the unintended consequences. And we're going to see more of them. Not that change wasn't needed. But it needed to be thought out more carefully. I'm not a paranoid person, really. But sometimes I'm beginning to believe that it really was set up, uh, this whole new system, to fail so that we would become a one system like England. And, you know, the difference is people don't realize that their equipment is antiquated. It's awful. And in England, at least, they have a choice. They can also carry private insurance. And their their survival rates, like on breast cancer, ours is like 95 or something like this. Theirs is way down in the 80s. A lot of this has to do with how long you wait, what the problems are with it. It's not a good system. They kept talking about the system in England. It's not a good system. The English people will, will tell you that. And I just worry that we're moving away from care based on the doctor-patient relationship, the two people that know the most yes. about it. The driver is becoming 
somebody around payment. How about the government? And people say, yeah. well, you fight with the insurance companies now. Yeah, but you know what? <laughs> you can fight with an insurance company and you can call your legislator if you really think it's bad. And most of us will try to help somebody. You ever tried to fight with the U.S. government? Thank Truly. IRS. Yes. So if they're the ones driving it, you know, you can't fight with them, really. I'm absolutely with you on those t- on those points for sure. I know one of the other topics that you all have placed some measure of focus on is around elder care and and elder abuse in the state. You want to talk a little bit about oh, what's going on on that front? Yeah, it's sort of a pet project for me. Uh, I think you see the papers about these personal care homes where they take. Uh, three or four patients uh their usual mode of operation is to take their social security so it's usually poor people that only have their social security to live on and they're going to provide you know services like we'll feed you and we'll remind you to take your medicine and so forth and what they do is they take their money and they live in absolute squalor they're not licensed uh we first said it was a misdemeanor and they just counted that as doing business and we had to go back and say it's a felony if you run one of these and we go in and we find any abuse neglect or exploitation you know somebody great said and i'm terrible about remembering names that you know you could tell the moral fiber of a, of a nation by how it treated its elderly and if that's the case we're in trouble uh, on maybe many fronts because elder abuse is rampant and it seems to be getting worse. And so often, it's from a family member. It's not, mom and dad have saved a whole lot now, and they have their house, and we can sell it if they needed to have a good place to stay in a nursing home. It's, that's my inheritance. And to heck with mom and dad. Sign the house over to me, and, you know, we'll we'll t- maybe take care of you. We may not. We may steal your money. We may never go see you. It's really sad. And then as people have less children, we've got a lot of people that don't have any family. And we are seeing more and more cases of um, young people, drug addicts going in, taking their grandmother in and, uh, you know, demanding that she cash checks and this kind of thing. And the banks seem to be a little bit ahead on that. I mean, my bank says they'd rather have a, a really angry client. Right. Then have somebody, that, a client that doesn't have any money because a family member emptied it out. I mean, we had a case in Cobb County and they took one of the people that had been there forever, a little old lady, for two and a half million, three million dollars. And it was a big deal. And so uh, our elder abuse laws were sort of like our child abuse laws were in the 60s. Uh, they were very, and we were just learning about child abuse mm-hmm. before it was, okay, well, that's a parent's right to you know spank their child and they're not really beating them. And so we're really having to look and change our elder abuse laws and update them so that the police and uh, you know task force that work with the elderly have the uh, tools they need uh, to prosecute cases and to bring this to the forefront. And I'm proud of Cobb County. They have a task force, not a county one, this was a bunch of citizens that got together, and they are leading the way on learning about elder abuse and what they can do. They bring the police. They bring people from the hospitals, uh, all the sheriff's departments, the banks and all, um, to uh, get together and talk about the elder abuse they're seeing and what they can do to stop it. Yeah, and you've also seen the last couple of years also, in addition to this, is um, the legislature really trying to... Uh, uh, trying to protect the elderly, uh, which is what the role of government should be in, in this particular situation, especially with Alzheimer's and, and other um, uh, other issues to make sure that 
um, you know, those in our society, our elderly, are protected. Our most vulnerable. I mean, that's what I think government is for. You know, we we're, we constitutionally have to educate our children. And for me, it's to take care of those that are the most vulnerable that by no means of, themse- of their own doing uh, are very vulnerable in society. Well, it's I've been very pleased to have the opportunity to sit down with you, Representative Cooper, and, and talk about these issues. You were mentioned the fact that you would like for more folks around the community to educate themselves. Can you recommend some good sources of information where people can go and and get good information and, and maybe participate on a little bit more educated basis with the goings on around our legislative process? Well, they can go to the Cobb Elder Abuse Task Force. It's, it is Cobb, but it's not a county thing. So it's Cobb Elder Abuse Task Force. They have a website and I think they have uh, information there. I think that as a state, we're probably behind on putting out that information. We do have an ombudsman for the elderly through the state. And if they have cases they'd like to report, they can, you know, call our ombudsman and uh, report them. Uh, Cobb actually set up one, and I'm not going to have the phone number. I'll get it back to you for another thing where they can, if they think there's elder abuse, they can call in. They don't have to say who they are if they don't want to do that. And so they can be investigated. So, and there are a lot of books coming out on end of life, elder abuse now that are not depressing, but it's just talking about the problems that we face as we age. I mean, we're an aging society. And once you reach 85, there's a one, you know, half the people come down with a form of Alzheimer's. That's scary because lots of us are living past uh, 85. And so I think you're going to see more and more as we realize that we're such an aging society. You have to promise to come back and talk more about other issues. Oh, I'd love to do that. Donald, any final thoughts before we let uh, the representative get back to the office? No, I just want to thank Madam Chair oh. for, for for taking a few minutes to talk about this because, um, you know, she will tell you where, where it is and, and, and also... Um, what issues are, are out there that are impacting the patients? So I just want to say from Mag, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day because I know you got a hectic schedule right now with the, with the legislature. Well, I do, but I'm a college professor and I enjoy educating people. <laughs> so thank you for this opportunity. And I'll tell the people of the 43rd District of Georgia, you know, which is East Cop, thank you for letting me serve. It, it's truly an honor to serve in the legislature and try to make a difference for the people of Georgia. It's been a treat, and I'm glad they've got someone in healthcare heading up your committee. That's awesome. And if you're listening to the podcast of the show, go to the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs Radio show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the podcast and subscribe to us because we're going to be bringing you people like this on a weekly basis on the show, and we would love for you to be able to stay in touch with them. Um, To Donald and to Representative Cooper, we want to say thank you very much. And to the folks who made us a part of their day today, thanks so much for making time to uh, check us out. And please turn around. Obviously, we talked about some very important issues to a lot of people around the state of Georgia, both in the city and out. Uh, So please share this with your networks so that we can get more folks involved in the process, maybe be able to make a phone call or two or talk to some people about the things that are going on um, and, and have us all be better educated for it. So we appreciate you in advance for that. Make sure to make an appointment to see us all same time, same place next week. We'll see you all then. 